radio by students for students. You are why. How to Break a Radio Station, the podcast, is taken from a show broadcast live on URY. Therefore, whenever we ask you to message in via the website, you will not be able to do so. Please bear this in mind as you enjoy the show. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to this week's edition of How to Break a Radio Station. This is your show here on URY, which over the course of this term will teach you, the listener, how to break your very own radio station. I'm Harry, and as always, I'm joined by the rest of the engineering team, Jess and Alice. Hello. Hello. And now, before I move on, I've been shouted at, pretty much, to plug the fact that, uh, as well as doing this show live, we also have a podcast form. Which, if you just if you just want the the information, not the music, you can listen to that. But it's now also available on Spotify and very very soon iTunes as well. So uh, yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. And last week we finished our double parter on dynamics, and today we're going to be learning about equalization or EQ, which will be following the signal chain of our OB kit. And this is the next thing to discuss. So without further ado, what what is EQ? I'm I'm going to tell you that. So yes. EQ or equalization, if you want to call it its full name, um, is the process of changing the spectral balance of a signal by boosting or cutting spe- specific frequencies. Uh, spectral balance is the relationship between sounds in a mix. Uh, the term equalization actually comes from early telephone systems when electrical signals were transmitted over long telephone cables. They lost information at high frequencies, so electrical circuits were designed to compensate for this, and they would equalize the signal at the receiving end. And as with any such technology, it wasn't long before engineers started to use it for creative purposes. They quickly discovered that they could alter reproduced sound in several waves removing unwanted areas of the spectrum, making sounds stand out by boosting or cutting certain frequencies, which is what we use EQ for today. EQ can do a couple of things. It can, for example, reduce annoying annoying sounds like background hum or hissing, which have a specific frequency. Or for example, if a room's acoustic has some quirks in it that make certain frequencies stand out too much, you can remove them. Also, sometimes some mics may emphasize some frequencies too much, so you might want to cut those out too. Um, But I think Harry's going to talk about this a bit more later. Uh, It can also be used more creatively. For example, if a certain instrument has some parts of its spectrum that you want to emphasize, or you have several parts all clashing for space in the same area in the mix, and you need to separate them. If you're not too careful, the sounds will collide and sound muddy at best and completely overwhelming at worst. As Alice was just mentioning, uh, there's this sort of spectrum of frequency, which, as with a lot of things, is based upon the human hearing range of uh, roughly 20 hertz to 20k hertz, 20,000 hertz. But engineers also refer to separate frequency regions or bands within the spectrum. Um, And although the exact names and boundaries vary vastly, uh, there are some common ones used... um, I'm going to go through here. Uh, so below 20 thirds would be subsonic, as in sonic range being the stuff you can hear. Subsonic, below that. Um, 20 to 50 hertz, sub-bass. 50 to 250 hertz, bass. 250 hertz to 2k hertz, low mids. 2k to 5k hertz, 
high mids, 5k to 20k hertz, high end, and 20k hertz plus supersonic. Love a list. Here's another one. Nice. There are there are there are also some abstract terms that you that are used to describe how these regions sound. And again, there's a lot of um, opinion-based stuff on this because it's all quite subjective. But to sort of give a rough idea of this, uh, 250 hertz you might call boom. Two hundred. Oh, no, I said that wrong. 125 hertz. There we go. You might call boom. 250 hertz, you might call mud or bloat. 500 hertz, honk or boxiness. Interesting thing, if you try and honk like a goose, your voice will resonate at around, five, uh, around 500 hertz. Hence the name honk. So, you know, something to, something to give a go at home, folks. Um, <laughs> 1K hertz is, uh, can be thought of as nasality. It's the sort of part of the voice if you if you did make that, that sound um 2k hertz crunch or hardness 5k hertz edge or sibilance and t over 10 kilohertz is air so there you go that's the end of the list i promise i promise that's <laughs> it for now um one trouble with all this though is that the brain's pretty clever. And if you were listening to something with a boosted high end, uh, then after a while, you will acclimatize to it and start to think that that sounds normal. So then when you go and listen to the original sound or the piece of music, you're going to start to think it sounds dull because your brain has gotten used to the higher the higher sound. Um, so yeah, it's one of those one of those things that just makes recording and editing and mixing that extra bit harder. You know, we love we love that. Um, EQ EQ changes, bringing it back to EQ, um, are shown as a frequency can be shown like on a frequency response graph thing, um, similar to one that's used for, for microphones that shows how well the microphone responds to different frequencies. So that would have frequency in hertz along the x-axis and gain in decibels along the y-axis. And a flat EQ uh, is a line across the spectrum at um, 0 dB. Um, and that is just to say that there is no EQ um, taking place. There's no effects being used. So. When listening to different frequency bands, some changes can sound obvious or even annoying and painful. Um, and the fun reason for this is that our hearing system doesn't perceive sound equally across the spectrum. We love it when our bodies are inconsistent. Um, equal sound contours are a way to demonstrate this. So each line on a graph of frequency against SPL, which is sound pressure level, and is, yes, yet another way to define loudness, um, represents a set of frequencies and sound pressure levels that sound equally loud. Um, so a line marked 20 phon on one of these graphs, um, phon being a unit of perceived loudness of sound. Uh, yes, yet another unit, for example, shows the SPL levels across the spectrum that sound equal in loudness to a one kilohertz sine wave at 20 dB SPL. Um, so 
at, at low and high frequencies, you will see um, that the that the curve is higher and then sloping down towards um, about 2k to 5k hertz, and that's the region that needs less boost, as it were, to sound the same level, which means that that's the reason that stands out. It's one of these graphs that's like the opposite way round, like you'd think it dips in, but that dip is actually where we hear the sound the most without any extra help. Um, it does, it does, it does mean a few things. So boosts in that region, if you're using an EQ and you boost 2K to 5K Hertz, they can sound pretty piercing and annoying because we already perceive those sounds as being quite loud. Um, another thing about this graph is that as the listening level goes up, as the SPL goes up, our response flattens out, which has a lot of impl impl implications. There we are for mixing. So if we mix at a low level, we have to boost the um, we have to boost the high and the low end. And if we if we mix if we then like bring the level back up it's going to sound top and bottom heavy. Now, there's no definitive solution to this. And unfortunately, um, it's just one of these things where if you listen to music at a different level, it will sound different. But most engineers tend to mix on the loud side. That's just the thing. Um, so we're not just sensitive to different areas of the frequency spectrum. We can also be more sensitive to other factors such as the length or the timbre or the volume of a sound and that can determine how loud we perceive it as. For instance, a short burst of sound at minus 1.5 dB would sound the same volume as longer periods of sound as plus 1.5 dB. Cool. Nice. Are you guys... Yeah, I was going to say, you guys, you guys understanding all that yeah I'm, I'm actually following this along quite well so if if you listening at home do have questions then uh feel free to we have had a message, message in via the website ah uh, we have a message from michael it says what frequency do you get if you inhale helium and then honk like a goose i am um, doing the calculations currently <laughs> so give okay. me another five minutes nice. and i'll let you know i'll i'll continue um, I'll continue then with what I've got to say and maybe we'll get back to you Michael yeah but if you two want to message in then you can message via the website yourwhy.org.uk um, so the way this all works um, there's, there's several different methods but they're all sort of based around this concept of filters they are sort of the simplest type of EQ uh, that is they were the, the first kind used and they form the basis of everything else we're going to move on to talk about but the actual science behind them is a little more complex unfortunately um, they reduce all frequencies beyond or, or or boost all frequencies beyond a certain cutoff frequency um, there's different kinds of filter a low pass filter attenuates frequencies above a cutoff which means it allows low frequencies to go through um, and which makes which means it makes high frequencies quieter. Uh, conversely, a high pass filter um, allows high frequencies to pass through and uh, shuts off low frequencies. And there's also 
a thing called a bandpass filter, which is just like a certain range, as we were talking about earlier, the different, we call them bands of frequency. Um, and you can just boost or cut uh, a given range um, with with a filter. So to demonstrate this, I'm, I'm currently using a mic that's going into a mixer, and this mixer allows me, um, it's, not, it's not the best mixer in the world, uh, it allows me three um, EQ controls. Uh, the first one I'm gonna demonstrate is, is, is uh, wait, is a low pass. So if I turn the low pass up, then my voice should start to sound a bit lower. Um, it's not the most obvious thing in the world, but there you go. I can turn that back down now, sound normal. Uh, high pass is gonna allow high, more high frequency stuff to come through. So if I turn this up, then you, I think you can really tell with this one. You are wide. I suddenly, every time I say it's it's super loud, um, and finally, bandpass filter will make the sort of mid range frequencies of my voice sound uh, much much louder, and this sort of sounds Ooh. yeah, it just sounds it doesn't sound interesting. The other two sound interesting. That one just makes it sound mmm. There we go. That's that's a sort of demonstration of. Uh, those different kinds of filter. Now they can they can be varying order of of, of steepness. Um, first order uh, frequencies. Uh, first order filters reduce frequencies by six decibels per octave, um, and so a frequency one octave below the cutoff will be six decibels. Will be the gain on that frequency will be reduced by six decibels, um, and two octaves below the cutoff will be um, twelve dB, and, and so on. And that's just a way of not having it like a straight cut, as as we discussed as we discussed before. We don't like straight lines. We like nice curves. Um, but they're, they're still fairly brute force in application, so we generally just use them to get rid of up, like upper and lower regions of the spectrum that we don't want, um, rather than for nice fine tuning. How they actually work? Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this. Uh, we do we do cover how the electronics of this actually works in our analog lectures. I took a quick look at the lecture slides. Um, where I remember this being discussed. And the first slide has the big words written across it, don't panic. <laughs> and I immediately panicked. And it's, 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 it's not the simplest thing. So I'm gonna try and like, kind of explain the basic idea without going into too much. Um, but if you do wanna know more, then, then let us know. Maybe we'll include it in like a little extra other episode later on. Um, so, the most widely used or popular method of filtering uh, would be a, a Baxendahl tone control, and they were invented in the 1950s by someone called Peter Baxendahl. His design overcame a few problems that were being had with filters at the time. Uh, variable capacitors, variable capacitors, and we discussed capacitors in episode one, were being used, and these are expensive and not 
and they're only available uh, for small capacitances. Inductors, which is a component that generates an electric electromotive force, or to put it very simply, voltage, um, based on a change in current, especially variable ones, are very expensive, and they're also quite big components as well. Um, his design allows you to vary gain at high frequencies and leave the low frequencies untouched and untouched and vice versa, which is exactly what you want. And it also mostly uses resistors. They are very cheap, which is great. Um, here's, here's where it, it, it could get super mathsy. Um, so capacitors... Oh dear. <laughs> I'm not going to go super mad. This is okay. This is an explanation of why I am not going to go any further. Capacitors and inductors have something called impedance, which is a bit like resistance, except for these two components, it's complex, meaning that it's made up of real and imaginary numbers. Ooh. Yeah. You don't need to know how this, how, you know, you don't need to know exactly how this stuff works, just how to use it. So I'm going to try and skirt around it. Um, the other main component used in the Baxendale uh, filter, uh, tone control rather, is an op-amp or operational amplifier, which I think I mentioned in our gain episode. And those can be used to increase or decrease the gain depending on the resistors used in conjunction with them. So to sort of summarize, the combination of resistors used and their position in the circuit dictate the cutoff frequency and if frequencies are cut or boosted and by how much. Um, now, Baxendorf tone controls are called active filters, which much like active speakers require power due to the use of op-amps. Op -amps. You can't just sort of create more stuff from nowhere and op amps uh, do like boost can increase the gain and boost the signal so you need to give them power in order to do that um, and most most filters are active one exception uh, being the those used in electric guitars which usually use passive tone controls because then they they don't need batteries um, and the idea for the design is sort of based on the Baxendale tone control filter things, but but not quite. You also have that in, in bass guitars. You, you, you'll have heard of passive and active basses, and they're two different ways of uh, adjusting the tone control. Okay, so I, I finished my maths. Do, do we want to hear the answer? Of course. <laughs> Certainly. Okay, so here's how I've worked this out. And this may be very wrong, but I've I've uh, found the. Hang on, let me find my source. Um, apparently, sound travels faster through helium. So, in through helium, it travels nine hundred and twenty-seven meters per second, apparently, according to the Live Science website. And but normal regular air, it's three hundred and forty-four meters per second. Now, there's a formula that's velocity equals frequency times wavelength. So we can use that to work out the wavelength of a sound traveling through air at a frequency of 500 hertz. Then we can plug that back into the equation using the velocity of air traveling, uh, sound traveling through helium, and you get an answer of 1,347 hertz. <laughs> nice. 
So, that is so it roughly it roughly like doubles. <laughs> yeah. Well, nearly triples. Mm. Yeah, nearly nearly triples how how high it is, but not how high it is perceived to be because that's not how hearing works. No. Mm. So that's your answer, Michael. Only top educational content here on the program. You are wise. Yes, if you have any questions like uh, honking in helium, uh, please do message us via the website uoy.org.uk or, of course, you can send us a text 07851101313. Now, we're going to move on to types of EQ, I believe. Uh, I don't know why I'm saying I believe it's me who's doing it, so let's, let's begin. And we're going to look at shelving EQ. So shelving EQ is used to either reduce the effect of or to boost frequencies that are above or below a specified cutoff point and the EQ shelves are filters like the high and low pass filters, but they're not as drastic and can also be used for boosting, whereas the low pass and high pass are mainly just for reducing. Uh, shelving equalizers come in two varieties, high shelf and low shelf, and they focus on the high end and low end frequencies respectively. Shelving is not a term that is ever applied to a mid-range boost or cut, so all frequencies are boosted or cut by the same amount and the change in level is applied all the way to the limit of the frequency spectrum. Low shelf EQs pass all frequencies above a specified frequency while reducing or boosting frequencies below it, and that is often applied to the base bottom frequencies, while a high shelf EQ does the opposite. They pass all frequencies below the shelf while affecting everything above, and that is normally applied to the trembly high end frequencies. Uh, usually the frequencies beyond the cutoff point are rolled off following a predetermined curve rather than cut off sharply. So, of course, like everything else we've talked about, it has control parameters. The first one for this is gain, which is how much the shelf should reduce or boost the sound that is to be changed by the shelf. Uh, the next one is Q, which I believe we're going to talk about a bit more later on, but my definition that I've got here is how drastic or gradual the shelf transitions should be from the cutoff frequency. This allows you to create a natural sound if set correctly. Frequency is of course the point at which the shelf takes effect and the slope selector. Some EQs have an adjustable steepness on the shelf so you can fine tune it exactly how you want it. Uh, finally we're going to look at why you should use shelf EQ. Uh, low shelf is good for cuts and boosts on solo acoustics, strings, piano and anything else that needs more low-end taming or power. A good example of this would be if your bass guitar lacks the bass at the bottom end, applying a low shelf boost at around 80Hz to 60Hz can help make the guitar sound better on the recordings. Whereas high shelf is often used to add crispness to things like cymbals, shakes and vocals, and often you, you probably notice often on recordings that vocals don't sound exactly like how you'd hear them in the room and applying a high shelf boost can make it sound more organic. Uh, it can also be used on acoustic guitars or quieter instruments to help them cut through the mix and not let them, not let them be drowned out by the rest of the sound. Okay, parametric EQ. So parametric EQ, unlike shelving EQ, which only lets you fiddle with frequencies above or below a certain point, a parametric EQ lets you fiddle with frequencies around a point. The frequency response curve that parametric EQ creates resembles the shape of a bell. These bell-shaped cuts and boosts can be made to 
your desired gain amount. You can also select the frequency at which the boost or cut is made. When a parametric EQ comes in really handy is that in addition to being able to specify your desired frequency and gain amount, a parametric EQ also allows you to control the width of your cut or boost. To achieve these different kinds of equalization, you must control the three separate parameters, which are pretty much similar to a shelving EQ. And that's the gain, how much to boost or cut, the center frequency, which is the center of the bell, and the band, I suppose they're not that similar to shelving EQ. <laughs> the gain's the same. And the bandwidth, which is how wide or narrow the bell will be. And bandwidth is usually controlled by a Q setting, which stands for quality factor defining the range of frequencies that will be affected by an equalizer. The higher the value of the Q setting, the narrower the bandwidth will be similar. The lower the Q value, the wider the bandwidth will be. A parametric EQ, which allows you to control all three of these parameters, is known as fully par parametric. And some equalizers allow you to alter only the gain and frequency of the equalizer and have a fixed bandwidth or Q setting. And these are referred to as semi-parametric or sweepable equalizers. Cool. I didn't actually I didn't actually know all of that. So that's 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 taught me something. Uh, the next next and final uh, different kind of EQ is graphic EQ, um, and. Uh, it's it's one that we've used ourselves in our um, OB kit until recently. We've used a DN332 graphic equalizer on our outside broadcast uh, chain. The plan going forward, though, is to use the EQ capacities of our X32 rack um, for this purpose, and then we can we can choose to use either graphic or parametric EQ, um, and it's a bit more sort of usable and. Uh, you get a nice little visual on a on a screen to tell you what you're doing, so you don't have to rely on your ears. It's it's bad. It's bad. I don't rely on my ears nearly enough. Um, graphic EQ consists of an array of fixed Q bands, um, the number and spacing of which vary depending on the unit that you have, uh, as in the equipment that you have. Uh, but common configurations are 31 band EQ, in where every third of an octave um, has its own little control or slider um, or you can also have 15 band EQ where every two thirds of an octave you get a little slider um, the available boost or cut is usually like plus or minus 18 dB um, and they are very common in live sound because it's very quick to apply um, if something is is feeding back which is 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 like when you you're not wearing headphones and you're on a, a group call with somebody and then um, the sound from the speak your speakers bounces off the wall goes in back into your mic at a slight delay and you get feedback um and that can sometimes happen in live sound you get like a sort of ringing sound some you know something's feeding back and if your ears are good enough if you've if you've really sort of trained your ears to to pick out different frequencies then you know ex you know roughly where that frequency is you can immediately reach for your graphic eq and put a couple of sliders down around that point and it should get rid of it like 
pretty much straight on so they're quite useful in that respect in in live sound um we don't tend to use them in in studio for a few reasons one of them is that uh there's a degree of ripple because the bands don't perfectly overlap. So if all the sliders were up, uh, you'd see a sort of wavy, not a straight um, frequency response showing like boosting at slightly different amounts depending on um, how close that frequency is to the frequency being controlled by the slider. Uh, they also tend to be quite noisy and they can make signals sound incoherent. So while these are worthwhile trade-offs for use in live sound, engineers often uh, demand more precision uh, from a studio setup, so they're le less popular. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit about a corrective EQ, and this this is much like how EQ was originally used in the telephone networks to fix fix the sound. So corrective EQ is equalization that is used to fix problems within the signal. Uh, like rumble, bleed, resonance, and other unpleasant frequencies that you might notice. Uh, the best way to approach EQ is that we want as little of it as possible. Extreme tonal shifts can have a negative impact on the quality of the sound. And there's often two main ways to approach correcting audio with EQ, as additive EQ and subtractive EQ. And it comes as no surprise that additive is boosting frequencies in the mix, in order to cover over any slight imperfections that may exist. I just turn my sheet over. <laughs> Definitely not reading off a script. And uh, subtractive <laughs> is cutting the offending frequencies out of the mix. And there's, there's plenty of debate between sound engineers as to which one of these is better. But in the vast majority of cases, there is one simple answer. And that answer is whichever one can improve the sound with the least editing. So you, wh whichever way will work without too much EQ. Uh, no amount of EQ can fix a sound that was captured incorrectly at the source. And as recording engineers, our focus should be to get the sounds that we need for the mix as early as possible. That is, to get them correct at the source and not have to edit them too much later. Corrective EQ should only be used for minor imperfections in the mix. For example, when the recording sounds good, but we, can't, we, can, we can tell that there's something not quite right, then we can try adding different EQs to try and make the sound as perfect as we can. Uh, of course, it makes sense to perform any corrective EQ before compression so that the compressor isn't triggered by and doesn't modify any unwanted frequencies that we don't want to keep within the mix. Uh, being able to hear problems in a mix is easier than finding the specific frequencies that are causing it. A reliable technique is to add a significant gain boost with a high Q value and then sweep across the spectrum and the exaggerated boost makes it easier to identify the problem frequencies because they react more quickly than the others. And we can then apply whatever EQ that we need to sort out those issues. Finally, we need to think about how often we need to change the EQ as sometimes it's not appropriate to use one setting for the whole recording. Uh, a single EQ setting is appropriate for use when we need to remove low-end noise on a kick drum, for example. This sound won't change throughout the mix, so we can basically just set the EQ and leave it. However, for things like vocals, uh, we might need to change the EQ fairly often, because with vocals and quite a few live instruments, to be honest, uh, they're likely to change in each part of the mix, so a corrective EQ to make them sound good in one section 
may not be appropriate for the whole recording. And this means that you'll need to use a lot more edits than just the one. In this case, you might be better off using dynamic EQ to correct the audio, as this will follow the vocal or whatever instrument that you're trying to record, and it will shift the corrective settings according to the changes in the sound, and it'll work harder when required and relax when it doesn't need to be there. Uh, this solution might not allow for quite as much fine-tuning, but it does require a lot less work for the engineer as you're no longer required to do every single part of the mix uh, separately. Cool. Uh, EQ doesn't have to be used correctly though. Um, it can also, um, it, this is mostly how we use it in, in radio and live sound, but it can also be used to enhance, enhance a recording or shape a mix. Um, now, instruments have qualities and aspects that exist at different frequency ranges. For example, the body or thud of a kick drum um, is in a different part of the frequency spectrum to the punchy attack sound from the beater of the drum. Um, and we can use EQ to bring these elements out or to reduce them. And this can change the timbre balance and the overall sound. Here's where the terms start getting uh, wishy-washy. Um, a bit like my list at the beginning, and uh, subjective, yeah. So every instrument has, has, has these different regions of frequency where different elements of that timbre stand out. Um, and there is a comprehensive graph showing the terms used for just about every instrument. Uh, it's a quick Google search away. Search for subjective audio qualities, and you're sure to come across it. Um, to give one example, though, brass instruments, I'm a brass player biased, if you can tell, uh, generally exhibit warmth at 200 to 400 hertz, honk at 1k to 3.5k hertz, rasp at 6k to 8k hertz, and shrillness 8k to 12k hertz. Um, and if we use a low cut going up to 200 hertz, then we not only make the brass sound clearer because it's got more of the high end, but we also leave room for the other elements in the mix. Yeah, so speaking of mix, I'm going to talk about how we shape a mix using EQ. And if we're going to use EQ to shape elements of our mix so they fit together, it's useful to think about mixing as a whole. It's somewhat like painting the elements and the, like the background, foreground, trees, people, whatever's in the picture, must all work together to give a coherent piece. And individual elements might sound great for guitar tracks, rich bass lines, a piano part, and massive synth parts. But once you put them all together, they fight for space. It's a bit like what an artist gets when they mix all the colors, which is brown, which isn't ideal. And so by shaping the elements with EQ, we allow them each to have their own space, which they are clearly visible, well, audible. So each element is, yeah. Like, so you can clearly hear each thing and they're not all muddy together and it's more pleasant to listen to. The overlap still exists and we can't really avoid it, but it's better to minimize it. Um, the key though is to ensure each element has an area in which it's clear and distinct. Yeah, so to, to give an example of this, so what, like I was saying earlier about the shrillness of a bass, brass instrument existing around 8 to 12 kilohertz, um, the sizzle of cymbals is also prevalent at those frequencies. And if you have a recording with lots of cymbals and uh, brass, then you're going to want both those things to be heard and not 
interfere with each other too much. So if you if you cut the if you use a low pass filter and, and cut the high frequencies um, off the brass, then that can give you uh, get rid of some of the top end without being too damaging to the sound because um, there's plenty going on lower frequencies, but also allow for the cymbals to cut through a bit better. Another option though is to make use of the stereo field, uh, which is where we talk about um, panning. So you can you can place the sound um, in in the in the center of the the stereo image or at either side and make something sound like it's coming from the left or the right of of a person. And we can give we can give elements more space this way. So if you pan the brass to the right and the cymbals to the left, then they have their own, they can exist in their own two worlds. Um, and they don't, they, they, they interfere with each other less because they're coming from different places. Um, also the listener perceives that. Um, so last week we mentioned that bass guitar and kick drum tend to fight over the space in the low frequencies and one solution is to use eq and cut the kick a little around 80 hertz boosting the boost the bass 80 to 160 hertz and this would give the kick uh, a nice low end and uh, more power there and leave the bass with plenty of room and, and body still and you can hear it but they each have their own area of of the frequency painting. There we go. Isn't that nice? Um, nice. You might ask, why not? Why not just pan the kick and the bass? Um, but that's the reason that's not as effective at lower frequencies is because it's a lot harder to localize low frequencies. So if there's two high frequencies, there's a fly buzzing around your room. You know, like roughly, you know where that is in relation to your head. You know, sort of roughly where the fly is at. If there's like, um, not that there would be, but like an elephant marching relatively <laughs> near to you, uh, then then you're going to be like, oh, there's an elephant elephant in the general vicinity, but I can't really tell where. Um, and and that that will be because it's a lot harder to tell where low frequency sounds are. There we go. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since I've seen an elephant marching past my bedroom. Yeah, yeah, it's not something you see every day, is it? <laughs> De definitely not no. around here, anyway. So, yeah, thanks to everybody for tuning in. And do come back next week, where we're going to be mixing it up a bit. Next week, we're talking about the mysterious Dante, uh, which is an audio networking tool, which is used very extensively by URY and as well as talking about audio over IP in general. So next week, I'm going to be joined by Marks, Jacob and Isaac, who are a little bit more experienced in how, how, how Dante works. You are why. You are why.